This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. 2017 was a remarkable year of global growth and declining unemployment rates. This year, 2018, opened strong as the S&P 500 had its best January since 1997, although as we sit and record this, the first week of February has started on a shakier note. So the question is, will major economies and financial markets continue on their upward trajectory or get derailed? To discuss that, we're joined by Charmin Mosavar Romani, Chief Investment Officer of Goldman Sachs Investment Strategy Group. Charmin's team recently released its 2018 investment outlook. Charmin's here to discuss that. Charmin, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You entitled your investment outlook a couple years ago, The Last Innings, and 2017, last year's, was Half Full. What is this year's report called and why? Our title this year is actually two-pronged. It's Steady as She Goes and Unsteady as She Goes. And we're building on a theme that we've actually had now for the last five years. You mentioned two of the titles, but if you actually go back to our 2014 outlook, we had called it Within Sight of the Summit. So the key message has been that there is more left to this recovery in bull market than people are talking about or at any moment in time has been conventional wisdom. So with the title half full, we're trying to convey that the glass is half full. Don't focus on what may look like half empty. The same with the last innings. The point was that there's more to this recovery, more innings left and more innings to this bull market. So the theme is the same again this year for 2018. Our view is when we're looking at economic growth, when we're looking at earnings, when we're looking at market appreciation, it's a steady-as-she-goes backdrop. On the other hand, we also say unsteady-as-she-goes because we think there's a strong, unsteady undertow driven by factors such as global geopolitical risks, a higher risk of terrorism, cybersecurity worries, what's going on in cryptocurrencies. So it's this push and pull between steady and unsteady, and our recommendation to our clients is to stay invested because in the long run, the steady-as-she-goes will be the key driver of their portfolios. So as we sit here in February of 2018, the United States is seeing its second longest bull market of the post-World War II era almost nine years. Why has it lasted so long? There are a couple of factors. One important factor is that obviously the market went down a lot and growth went down a lot. It was a pretty significant global financial crisis. So generally the recovery would be slower, but longer and steadier. So we have a very favorable earnings backdrop. We've had very steady growth, even though it is the slowest economic recovery since the post-World War II period of any other recovery that we've looked at, at 2.2% roughly. It has produced very steady earnings growth. So when we look at earnings growth in the U.S., and actually on a global basis, with the exception of a couple of periods such as the shock from the European sovereign crisis or the shock from the big drop in oil prices, we've had a very steady earnings backdrop. We've also had very low inflation and low volatility of inflation. So that environment allows for much better market multiples. We've actually done some very interesting work. If you look at environments where inflation is low and inflation is stable, meaning low volatility of inflation, you tend to have much higher 
market multiples. So right now, while everybody might look at the long-term averages, we actually think people should look at the averages over this period, which is post-April 1996. We actually call it a low inflation and low volatility of inflation regime. And we think people need to look at that when they're thinking about the backdrop in which this market rally is continuing. So given the length, do you see any signs of market fatigue at this point? When we think of market fatigue, one has to look at irrational exuberance. You sort of want to see, have you seen a big flow into equities? Is everybody euphoric about equities? And in fact, in our steady as she goes perspective, that backdrop, we make a comment that there's been a lot of disdain for this rally. If you look at the flow of funds since the trough of the financial crisis, we have had the greatest flows into bonds. If you look at ETF and mutual fund flows for U.S. investors, we've had about $1.8 trillion into bond funds. If you look at U.S. equities, leaving aside dividend reinvestments, we actually have had a cumulative outflow of $185 billion. This is through the end of 2017. And yet, if you look at the returns for bonds, it is one of the lowest returning asset class, about 4% returns. And if you look at the returns for equities since the trough of the crisis, U.S. equities, it's the highest returning, way outperforming emerging markets and developed markets at about 19%. So when we actually think about fatigue of this rally, we haven't seen the flow of funds that would create that kind of fatigue. Now, most recently, meaning the last few months of 2017 and the first part of 2018, the first few weeks, there was a lot of euphoria, a lot of investor optimism. And we actually told our clients in a report that's available, obviously, on the website, that clients should be prepared for a market correction, that suddenly this increase in euphoria that's very short-term will lend itself to some kind of a market correction. And we had warned clients that we're going to see something like 5 to 10%. We had said that the probability of a 5% correction is close to 95%, and the probability of a 10% correction is close to two-thirds. And so we're seeing some of that now. The interesting point is you might see that correction, but it is from a higher level than the beginning of the year, actually. Right. So your 90% call looks quite prescient at the moment. People are still saying, though, aside from the little downdraft we've seen now, that stocks are overvalued, that we're in a bubble. What do you say to that? We look at a series of metrics, right? There's no one metric in our business that gives us perfect foresight. Nobody has a crystal ball. So we look at a series of metrics, and when we look at these metrics, the question is, what do you compare them to? And the biggest takeaway that we like to leave our clients with is that there's no long-term mean reversion, so that if valuations are high, one shouldn't expect them to revert to a long-term mean within any particular period of time. Obviously, when equities are very cheap, expected returns are higher, and when equities are expensive forward-looking returns are lower. But one cannot actually rely on valuation as a means of underweighting equities. In fact, if you look at these standard metrics and use them as a measure of getting out of equities, one would have gotten out of equities, depending on which metric you want to use, sometime between 1992 and 1995 and missed that entire bull market of the 90s. And here, if we wanted to use some of the similar metrics, we would have gotten out of equities in late 2013 and left about, let's say, 60% on the table. So valuation alone is not a good metric 
to go underweight equities over a one, two, or three-year period. It's very good for the very long run. It's also asymmetric. It's a better tool to go overweight equities when equities are cheap. We always tell our clients that if there's one key takeaway from all our investment conversations is to recognize it's much easier to go overweight equities when equities are cheap than it is to go underweight equities, especially for taxable clients. Because the break-even to make up for selling the equities, paying long-term capital gains, especially if you're in any of the high-tax states, is very significant. So in aggregate, when we think about valuation, one is it's not a great measure to go underweight. There's no statistical significance that it is a good tool to use because you're going to revert to some long-term average. In addition, when you're looking at the current environment we're in with this low volatility of inflation and generally low inflation levels, which is our expectation for the rest of 2018, market valuations tend to stay at higher levels. Another common myth about this bull market is that it's all about tech, and that's a myth that you debunk in this report. But certainly the tech stocks get a lot of attention on cable news and the like. But talk a little bit about what you found when you did the work. We have responded to this question about the fangs. So when we're looking at Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, some people prefer using Microsoft and Google, we've been telling our clients that when you think about these, people talk about the incredibly strong returns. So let's look at 2017. You're looking at returns well over 40%. You look at the S&P at, let's say, 21%, and people say, oh, the fangs are the biggest driver. But actually, if you take the fangs out and just reinvest those proceeds back into the S&P 500, that 21% only goes down to 19%. So the rest of the market has had very strong returns. In fact, if you look at the dispersion between the best-performing sector and the worst-performing sector, it's not some astronomical spread. In fact, it's nothing like what we saw for a long period of time in the 1990s. So it's a bit of a myth that people talk about the returns being driven by the fangs. It's actually not. It's across the board and very steady earnings across the board. So you mentioned equities were very strong last year. U.S. equities returned roughly 21.8%, But you also talked about this environment of low volatility. What explains this long, prolonged, low-vol environment, and how long can it last? We're all trying to figure out why is it that volatility is so low and has stayed so low. We can think of a few factors. Earlier, I had mentioned the low inflation and low volatility of inflation. So if we have had this regime shift since 1996, where we've been in a period of low and stable inflation, that would explain partly why we would see lower volatility in the S&P 500. So when we look at realized volatility or implied volatility through VIX, we see that and we attribute part of that to lower volatility of inflation and lower volatility of interest rates, very slow and steady decline in rates, and now stabilized at these levels for a long time. Generally, on a global basis, we also haven't had any material shocks. We've had a period of improving economic growth across the different countries across the world. When we look at, for example, the IMF has come out and stated that since they have had history, the lowest number of countries in recession, so the greatest number of countries growing globally on a synchronized basis. So those all help contribute to low volatility. In addition, we've had very steady monetary policy and a lot of communication 
from all the policy makers. So that also introduces an element of stability. Now, the question is, is something significantly changing, as we've seen from the downdraft in the market? We don't actually think so. We think they're going to continue to be very clear about their communications. We think there might be some misinterpretation of some of the comments from the ECB and the BOJ thinking that they're quickly turning around and are going to tighten policy. We just think the easing is over, but actually we will continue to stay in an easy monetary policy environment for the next year or so. Let's talk a little bit about what you're telling clients of the firm. Your 2018 investment outlook, as we talked about, recommends that we stay invested in equities despite the valuations and particularly overweight U.S. assets. What do you tell the clients and how do you explain it? Our overweight to U.S. assets is driven by our strategic asset allocation recommendation. And that's very important. We tell all our clients to think about their strategic asset allocation and make sure it's customized for them. There's no generic model portfolio that works for all our clients. It has to be customized. People have to be very thoughtful about their investment horizon, their risk tolerance, their cash flow requirements, their tax status, and then have a customized strategic asset allocation. In that strategic asset allocation, we have a very strong preference for U.S. assets because of this long-term investment theme we have of U.S. preeminence. In fact, one of the titles of our outlooks a few years ago was U.S. preeminence. And we believe that when you look at U.S. preeminence and compared to other parts of the world, both developed economies and emerging economies, U.S. is preeminent and nothing, including the rapid rise of China's economy, will actually challenge that. That includes everything from better margins, better earnings growth, strong institutions, great innovation, all those types of various factors that would prompt us to want a preponderance of the assets in U.S. companies for on the equity side. And obviously for their bond side, people would have to have whatever their local currency biases would be. When we actually look at corporate management, there's an incredible study done by a series of professors, and you actually see that U.S. companies are best managed for shareholder value. And within those companies, U.S. multinationals get the highest ranking. So we think our clients should have more exposure to these types of companies, especially given that when you look at the S&P 500, you already have a fair amount of overseas earnings and overseas operations. When we look at that host of factors, it's the strategic recommendation to have more U.S. assets with, again, the view of U.S. preeminence. Then when we look at the tactical view, our view is to say stay invested. And then there's some specific areas that we've outlined in detail in the report where we think there are some good opportunities. So for example, we still like U.S. banks. We think U.S. master limited partnerships are an attractive place to be. So we have some tactical recommendations also to U.S. assets, but also to some non-U.S. assets. So for example, we might recommend Spanish equities on a tactical basis. But the key theme is not to go underweight equities in spite of high valuations. Obviously, the U.S. looks pretty strong right now. But as you mentioned, the IMF is forecasting fewer countries in recession than ever this year. What are the origins of the synchronized global growth we're seeing? And can we expect it to last? We don't see any particular shocks on the horizon that we could think about from an economic or capital markets perspective. Meaning when we're looking, let's say, at the U.S. economy, we don't see major imbalances 
It's not as if housing is driving too much growth. It's not like the dot-com era where technology was driving too much economic growth. It's not as if we're seeing huge leverage in, let's say, the financial sector as we saw in 07, 08. So when we look at economic imbalances, we don't see any of these imbalances across the board, which would create a shock. Where we do see some imbalances would be in China, for example, from a debt perspective. When we're looking at debt to GDP, debt to GDP has continued to grow, albeit at a slower pace, but it still continues to grow. But given the nature of that economy and the closed nature of that economy from a capital inflow and outflow perspective, in that they can control capital outflows, we don't think that's going to be a source of shock anytime soon. Where we could have shocks are things we can't anticipate. So the geopolitical shocks with North Korea, where that issue is headed, what happens with negotiations, what happens with sanctions is uncertain. Could we have shocks, for example, in U.S.-China trade relations or U.S.-China from a geopolitical perspective under the Trump administration? That could be a shock. It's something we can't anticipate. What about major terrorist attacks? Terrorist attacks in OECD countries have gone up, but they have to be quite significant for us to think that they could derail global growth and derail this equity market. Similarly, cyber attacks have gone up. Some of them have been quite significant with a very large number of people affected, but that alone wouldn't affect the economy unless it was a major attack on infrastructure. We talk to all kinds of cyber experts who give us their views, and that seems quite unlikely, but it's not something that we could really anticipate And we don't recommend our clients position a portfolio for something that one cannot really predict. How about monetary policy? The U.S. obviously beginning to tighten a bit after years of essentially zero interest rate policy. Europe still a little bit more quantitative easing on the horizon. Could the divergence in monetary policy that we're seeing from the major economies create some friction in the markets? Our view on Fed policy is also a steady-as-she-goes view, just like her title. When they first started to tighten rates in December 2015, there were so many naysayers that were faulting the Federal Reserve and saying that this was a major mistake. And in fact, in one of her testimonies, Chair Yellen, right after the first rate hike, made a comment that when four criteria are met, tightening does not lead to a recession. If one is early in the tightening cycle... If one is starting to tighten when there's slack in the economy, when inflation is low, and if the pace is very slow and steady. And if one thinks about the criteria in 2015 and most of 2016, that is what we have seen. So they've been very slow, very steady with some slack left. Now that slack, obviously, with the incredible unemployment rate that we have very low, the continued improvement in non-farm payrolls is declining but we still think that we have enough slack that this slow and steady pace that they'll have in 2018 is not going to derail the economy. You outlined some of the risks, the exogenous risks, as it were. Let's go a little bit deeper. North Korea, key risk for this year. Sitting here today, how do you make sense of what might happen on the Korean peninsula and whether it will spill over into the broader markets? We speak to a very large number of geopolitical experts We had a client call where we had Secretary Ash Carter, former Secretary of Defense, on our call. We try to go to people who might have a lot of insights into the various probabilities. 
On the issue of significant military engagement with North Korea, we have people who have a probability as low as 10, again, experts in the field, and we have people with strong military backgrounds with numbers as high as 50%. So it's a pretty broad range, but everybody's 50 and lower. The average or the median is around 25%. That's not a low number if one thinks of a significant military engagement with North Korea. Certainly a lot of lives would be lost, but it's not clear what's the nature of that military engagement and whether it would have a direct impact. It would certainly have an immediate impact on the U.S. Markets would trade off. But we've gone back historically and looked at all the various episodes, all the way back actually to Pearl Harbor. And unless other things are happening in the background, meaning other economic factors, inflationary factors, policy issues, these things do not have a major impact on the U.S. economy or U.S. growth rates or the equity market. So other things have to come into play. We looked, for example, at the mid-70s, 73, 74, all the issues going on at the time with President Nixon, but also you had the Arab oil embargo and you had oil prices quadrupling. So other factors have to come into play to actually create a downdraft in the U.S. economy or in the equity markets. The other risk you've mentioned is the trade dynamic between U.S. and China, obviously deeply integrated at some level, and there's a lot of noise around that. How do you assess the risk of some spillover from trade tension there? One of the questions actually people have asked us is whether there's a big shift in sentiment towards China, and is this something new under the Trump administration? And in fact, we had talked about issues with China and the changing perceptions or realities of people as they look towards China. And we mentioned a Council of Foreign Relations report a few years ago that had said the U.S. needs to reassess its relationship. We quote a recent book and some articles by Graham Allison about the relationship with China. So there's certainly a reassessment of how the U.S. looks at China and looks at its trade relations. And it's unlikely that actually nothing materializes from this reevaluation and reassessment. And we think some of it is actually warranted. It will create a bit of volatility. We don't think it's the kind of volatility that will completely derail again this economy and the equity markets, but it'll certainly create a little bit of volatility. And whether we see two, three, five percent downdrafts, something is going to create these downdrafts that we talk about. And so that could be one of the factors. You talked earlier about the lack of excitement or euphoria about U.S. equities at the uh, not a well loved bull market. One place where we do see a little euphoria, maybe even mania, is in cryptocurrencies and crypto-affiliated stocks. Is there any chance that the price swings and the volatility in the crypto space spills over to the broader market? When we think of cryptocurrencies, and we've researched them, and we have some material in our outlook, and we actually encourage people to look at an exhibit that we have where we look at past bubbles. So we look at the dot-com bubble, we look at Japanese equities in the late 80s, early 90s, and show what these bubbles were like. Then we compare that to tulip mania in the 1600s and compare it to the price of bulbs there. And then we look at the prices for Bitcoin and Ether and show that these cryptocurrencies have had increases far outpacing not only equity bubbles, but even the tulip mania the that tulips. we all refer to. So there's no doubt in our mind that these prices are not warranted. So the next question we then ask ourselves is that, is this just temporary volatility 
or is there something inherently not valuable about the cryptocurrencies in their current incarnation? We like blockchain technology. We like the concept of a digital currency. So, for example, let's say at some point the U.S. Federal Reserve decides they're going to have a digital currency. Those could all make a lot of sense. However, when we think about the current environment that we're in with these cryptocurrencies, with all the inherent shortcomings, we think that there's going to be a lot of volatility and gradually a decrease in value. These are not a great medium of exchange. They're not a store of value. Something with 100% volatility is not a good store of value. And if you look at the kind of declines we've had across the board in many of these currencies, not just the last month or two, but even in prior periods, they're just too big a drop. And it's also not a great unit of measurement in terms of its volatility. So it doesn't meet the requirements for a good currency. When we look at the percentage of market capitalization of cryptocurrencies and compare it, for example, to the dot-com bubble, it's tiny. At the end of the year, it was 0.8% of global GDP. And the reason that we look at global GDP is because so much of the trading activity in these cryptocurrencies is outside the U.S. It's in many of the emerging market countries. It's in Asia. So 0.8% going down is not going to be significant. And already, it's probably close to half of that amount just from the declines that we've had from its peak levels. So we don't think it's something like the dot-com era where it could be a huge disruption to the U.S. or other economies on a global basis. Are there other risks that investors should be considering as they think about the year ahead? There are always risks there that we can't anticipate. So we've tried to highlight in the unsteady as she goes possible risks, but obviously there are things there that we cannot think about. The domestic politics in the U.S., the increased rise of populism on a global basis, the anti-immigration sentiment. So those are risks out there. Again, none of them we think are going to be hugely disruptive to global economies, and there are obviously things out there that we just cannot anticipate. The unknown unknowns. So finally, history teaches us a lot about where we are in the cycle, but is it possible that this time around, given the U.S.'s unprecedented quantitative easing coming out of the last recession, that we've managed to create an environment that doesn't neatly follow history, and perhaps the market won't undergo a price correction at the normal time, or do you think this cycle will fit more or less the typical pattern? When we talk about our investment philosophy for our clients, we always tell them that history is a useful guide and that while no one event and no one bull market and no one period of economic recovery exactly matches what we've seen in history, there are more things in common than are not. In fact, we tell our clients that if you hear the phrase, this time is different, they should have their antenna up and be incredibly cautious and worried about people saying that because it is so rare that something is that different. So, for example, when we look at the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve of the United States and we go back to the 40s, you could actually see the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve was just as large as a percent of GDP and declined very steadily without being disruptive at all. So when people think about can we get out of this quantitative easing, does it have to be disruptive? We look at history, it's not exactly the same environment, but that was not disruptive at all. So when people say something is totally unprecedented, we believe that we need to do a lot of research to try and see if there are any similar patterns. So when we talk about cryptocurrencies, yes, it's true we didn't have blockchain before. It's true that we didn't have this exact same format, 
But on the other hand, we have had manias, and tulip mania is a perfect example and a useful guide. So we always tell people we need to look at history to see what could be similar and what is different. So we do have a slow economic recovery, but if we actually look at past recoveries, we've had ones that have been even longer than this. When we look at this bull market, we've had bull markets that have been higher and longer than this one. So we do think history is a useful guide. Well, that's a great way to wrap it up. Charmaine, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on February 5th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition, The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.